Well, it's my deep honor and privilege to be with you this morning. Um, it's been a little while since I've been at the 8 a.m. Cool and Gatter service. Um, and there's so many new faces here today. So some of you are like, we came back because we thought Scott would be preaching this week. And I'm so sorry that instead you get me. My name is Michael Hands. I'm the lead minister of the New Life family of churches. So this church is one of three churches at the moment, we're prayerfully hoping more one day, um, that are part of the New Life family. And I have the honor of serving as a lead minister of that. Uh, but I'm also privileged to speak in this platform because the pastor who usually preaches here would be literally one of the best communicators of the gospel and the word of God I know today. Amen? Wow, for an 8 a.m., that was pretty good. Well done. Thank you for rocking up and being ready this morning. We're in the middle of a series called Crucial Conversations, and uh, uh, this is my first time preaching at Cooley since I welcomed my second child into the world, Baby Banner. Um, for those of you who don't know, that was successful. Sarah did a great job. He looks beautiful, just like his mum, so we'll see how he grows. Hopefully he gets none of my looks and all of my nothing. So on that note, would you join with me as we pray and come before the Word of God together? Gracious God. God, to have crucial conversations, we, we first must know there's a God that can be conversed with, who invites us to reason with him, to speak, to know him and be known by him. God, we thank you that you are not afraid of our doubts, our questions, our concerns. You step into them. I pray as we wrestle through today, Holy Spirit, may your word be made known to us, may May cultural ideas be unpacked with Scripture. Lord, that we might know you can be trusted and you are good. And as always, in Jesus' name we pray, less of me, more of you. Amen. Amen. It was 2019 when something happened in the, in, in the Christian world which threw me off balance. A Christian leader posted on Instagram that he was walking away from the faith. Now, you may have seen this. You may not have seen this. It'll be, I'll just make sure this is working. I don't think it is. If we go to that first slide, uh, a, a guy who I'd grown up with um, knowing as a Christian singer and songwriter, he was an amazing leader, someone who had formed a lot of uh, my hopes and aspirations to be in ministry, came out in 2019 after about 20 years of leading in the church. And he declared to the world, not just to his family, not just to his church, I'm leaving the Christian faith. And it shook me. It shook me to my core, particularly because of the reasons that he suggested. When, when asked why was he walking away from God, he said this, how many miracles happen? Not many. And no one talks about it. Why is the Bible full of contradictions? And no one talks about it. How can God be love, yet send 4 billion people to a place all because they don't believe and no one talks about it? Christians can be the most judgmental people on the planet. They can also be some of the most beautiful and loving people, but it's just not for me. Why? Because no one talks about it. Now, this might be your first time in church today, and you're like, oh my goodness, this started really heavy. Is he going to tell us to walk away before we even began? Not at all. But if you have been a church in any, in any, for any length of time, you'll know that this claim is one that we hear a lot. In fact, it might be one that, that you personally bear with the church. That there are questions, there are concerns, there are doubts, and no one's talking about it. 
Now, when I read this, I was, I was shocked and disappointed and hurt for, for a couple of reasons. Number one, because this man was someone that I had come to trust. His songs, friends, we sing in church that he has written. He'd written some of the greatest gospel music that I had come to know in my lifetime. And I was shocked that someone could do that and yet now walk away. The second thing for me that shocked me was this has not been my experience of the Christian faith. I hear this so often that no one's talking about hell. When I was young, I was surrounded by men and women of God who delved deep into these questions with me. That when we think about, well, miracles aren't happening, I've been surrounded by people who've not only helped me see miracles are happening, but number one, that there is a biblical way to understand this stuff. And the reason why I raise this is because we've got to recognize that there is a claim against the community of God that we talk about easy things and not about the things that matter. And that's why we're in this series of Crucial Conversations. Because we believe that God does want to talk about these things. That there are cultural moments happening around us that Scripture doesn't seem to avoid, but that Jesus steps into boldly because Jesus longs to have crucial conversations. What is a crucial conversation? Well, we think a crucial conversation is this. It's, it's, it's this series where we want to have these conversations around things that matter to the heart of God because they're taking place in the heart of humanity. And so over this series, we want to explore. We, you know, last week, Scott unpacked suffering beautifully. You can catch up on the podcast. Next week, we have Tim Buxton and Jordan Morris coming to talk about how do we wrestle with refugees and, and, and what does it look like for us to unpack this? I'm pretty sure that's next week. Fantastic. Uh, in the following weeks, we're talking about women and leadership and miracles and medicine and how this stuff can interface with the Christian faith. But we're not going to just do this this year. Every year, we will be having crucial conversations about things that matter. Why? Because Jesus wasn't afraid of crucial conversations. Conversations. In John chapter 3, John chapter 3, verse 1, we read this beautiful moment where it says, Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night. Why did Nicodemus come to Jesus at nighttime? Because he needed to talk about things in the dark that he was too afraid to question in the light of day. We're going to be welcomed into a moment in John chapter 3 where Nicodemus wants to talk about things that no one wants to talk about in Judaism. And he comes to this man named Jesus, this rabbi who's put a spoke into the wheel of his faith and starts to unpack how we are saved, who the Holy Spirit is, what does it mean to be born again. And what you see start to happen in John chapter 3 is this beautiful exposition. But let me wind back and take you to that moment in the middle of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. And just in our mind's lights, not in Scripture, but come with me, I want to analogize for a second that Late at night, Jesus hears a knock at the door. And he comes downstairs and he opens. And standing there is not Peter. It's not Mary. It's not John. It's Nicodemus. Now you're like, we knew that. But, but why is this significant? Nicodemus was the leader of the very party that in years to come would be the ones leading the charge for Christ's crucifixion. And Jesus knew this. He knew that this is who Nicodemus led, that he was a figurehead of the very people who hated what Jesus was doing. So what does Jesus do when Nicodemus rocks up late at night with questions? Does he say, it's too late, it's too difficult, it's too hard? No, what we see happen next is that Jesus invites him in and has one of the most catalytic conversations that leads to John's summation of the gospel, John 3, verse 16 and 17, which unpacks beautifully what Jesus came to do and who he was. But we want to highlight what is happening 
happening with Nicodemus here is similar to what happened with the Christian leader on Instagram, except that Nicodemus found someone to talk about his questions. Nicodemus was going through something. I want to suggest that we saw the Christian leader go through. It's a thing called deconstruction. This idea when something catalytic happens in your life and it starts to cause you to question everything you grew up believing. Now, some of you are like, decon what? I came to church today to hear about deconstruction. You may never have heard about deconstruction before. But just for this moment, I want to talk about Jesus and deconstruction because I think this is important. And if you haven't heard about it, it's not because it's not prevalent in your world. It's probably because people aren't talking to you about it. Because deconstruction, friends, is in my belief, one of the most crucial things that we need to wrestle with in the church today because we're seeing a generation walk away from the church and faith because no one talks about the things that matter. A guy named David Kinnaman, um, who did research with uh, World Vision and Abana Group, came out and found out that two-thirds of young people who grow up in the church will walk away from faith as they emerge into young adulthood because they just don't get to talk about the things that matter to them. But instead of talking with you about them or with the church about them or with the community about them, they turn to another source that, that has an official tone to it. David Kinnaman says this, Many of us today turn to our devices to help us make sense of the world. Young people especially use their screens in their pockets as counselors, entertainers, instructors, even sex educators, why build up the courage to have what will likely be an awkward conversation with a parent, pastor, or teacher when you can just ask your phone and no one else will be the wiser? What I've seen happen in my time as a pastor is that people have consulted media and the internet more than their faith community about the questions that matter to them, and it's led them to walk away. And sometimes this can be because we don't like when people have questions. Why does God send people to hell when someone asks that question? We're like, I don't know if I want to touch that. And it's usually because we don't know the answer ourselves. And so people leave the faith because the internet is not afraid of offering answers to questions. But just because someone can access information doesn't mean they've accessed knowledge. Just because someone's accessed knowledge doesn't mean they've accessed truth. And just because someone's got truth doesn't mean they have wisdom which is why we've got to unpack this stuff in community and in faith because there is a generation leaving the church. And here's what I love about New Life Kulangata is I'm not even sure what the age of the oldest person is, but we have those who are elderly in this church. And we have right now over there, I think my son might be the youngest, but we have babies in this church and everyone in between. This is a church of generations and a generational church. May it always be that way, friends. Amen. But to do that, we must not just assume that the next generation is going to take on cultural Christianity. We have to invite them into biblical discipleship. Because everyone has a faith, and some people's faiths are floundering. So let me unpack for you real quick. What is deconstruction? So deconstruction, if just to be clear, is the process. David, Dr. Eric Mason says it this. It's the process of reevaluating your core beliefs or evaluating whether or not the religious system you were nurtured in is what you've really embraced. Some of you are here today, and you've never known what deconstruction is. My hope by the end of today is you would understand it so you can offer help to those walking through it. There are some of you here today that you know someone walking through deconstruction of faith. They're questioning everything. And my encouragement to you is that you must be a source and a light in the storm of doubt and questions. 
There are some of you here today who are walking through deconstruction. Who you're at New Life Kulangata because you're giving church one last shot before you walk away from faith altogether. Or as you're in the middle of doubt, I just want to say, if you are doubting or if you have questions and you're not sure about the Bible or any of this, you are so welcome here. May this church be a place of safety for you where you can process these questions in community. Why? Because I believe that this must be a place where people can find Jesus is not afraid of your doubts. Because deconstruction, friends, is not always a bad thing. Let me explain it like this. When we, when we understand deconstruction, we must first think through the way faith is formed or the way worldview is formed. And before you can deconstruct something, it must first be that was, thank you. It must first be constructed. And there should be a slide on the screen behind me that construction is the road to belief. So everyone at some stage, particularly if you grew up in church, and this is why we have Jenga blocks, because who loves a good prop during a sermon? Thanks, Scott, for the laugh. There's a sense that when you are young, you construct your worldview or your belief. And every single one of us will have at some stage constructed our worldview. If you grew up in church, there's some really good things that will have been a part of your worldview. At some stage, someone will have told you that in Genesis 1 verse 1, God created the heavens and the earth, and it was all a good thing. That's a really good thing that we are taught at a young age. And as you test it, we believe that it stands true and we affirm that belief. So you may have been taught that the Bible was the inerrant and the infallible word of God, that we can trust Scripture. That's still something we as a church hold to. It's a good constructed belief. You may have been taught that, hey, Jesus Christ died and rose again, that you might know life and life to its fullness and the forgiveness of sins. What a beautiful and powerful belief. But in amongst these beliefs can sometimes be other things that are constructed to our faith that we don't question because the first stage of construction is this, it's naivety, it's innocence, it's accepting things at, for, at face value. And so someone comes along, and I'm not sure if, if this has been your experience, but they go, they hop up in front of you in church and say, hey, if you would love more money, if you would love a better car or a house, then you've got to give more to church. And that becomes a part of our constructed belief. Someone says to you, hey, no matter what the pastor says, the pastor is always right. Don't question teaching and preaching from the front. And so this cultural understanding starts to come around. And whilst there is some stuff down the bottom here that is helpful, if we're not careful, at times, there can actually be things that have come a part of our faith that are neither biblical nor true. And this actually weakens our structure and weakens our faith. All of us have a constructed worldview. Even if you're not a Christian here today, there are things that you were taught, if you're an atheist, a Hindu, or a Buddhist, that you have taken at face value without question because everyone at some stage constructs a worldview. Now, this is, the reason why this is important is because we have to first understand that deconstruction isn't a bad thing. Deconstruction isn't a negative thing. In fact, sometimes it can be a really helpful thing. In fact, this guy named Charles, it should be, on the screen, whoop, should be on the screen behind me, a guy named Charles says this beautiful quote where he says, The kind of good deconstruction continues as we survey church history. Many of the reformers died at the hands of corrupt religious leaders and systems that sought to silence the voices of common people and limit their ability to read and learn the scriptures themselves. What do I mean when we talk about that? Well, the understanding is that throughout church history, deconstruction has been pivotal. 
You think back 500 years ago, Martin Luther finds out that the Catholic Church is saying no one else but ordained ministers or priests can read the Word of God. And Martin Luther reads the Word of God and finds out that the Word of God is for all people to understand, should be translated for all people to understand. He questions his traditions, his original assumptions. He deconstructs part of his faith. And because of that, we now, and the other reformers, we now have access to the Word of God like never before. You see, 200 years ago, guys like William Wilberforce and the abolitionist movement start to say maybe everyone is created in, in, in the the image of God. Maybe those of different color to me should not be slaves, and we should celebrate their uniqueness and their creation. And he challenges it and leads to the abolition of slavery as a legal, economic, viable thing in the West. These are deconstruction issues where people go, hey, I was taught this at a young age, and I now need to press on it and step into it. Because deconstruction, friends, is the path to concern. Deconstruction is the path to concern. When there are things in your life that come up against reality or the Word of God, and you start to go, I'm not sure if this is good. And I want to offer, Paul challenged some communities that they should have done a better deconstruction of teachings that were offered to them. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 7 to 9, Paul writes to this church, and he says to them, Hey guys, listen, some people have come along and taught you some really dangerous things. There was this party called the Circumcision Party, and they came along and started to teach the Galatian church that to be saved, they must be circumcised. Now, if you don't know what circumcision is, there's a quick video on this. I'm kidding. There's not going to be a video on the screen. Well, that'll be a sermon for another time. But Paul comes along and he says, no, the only thing which saves you is the love of Jesus Christ, forgiveness of sins, and the faith and trust that he is Lord. And he says to them this, you were running a good race. Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? What he's saying to them is like something kind of teaching came in and began to hinder you. And I want to suggest it's because the teaching that was offered to you was not teaching of freedom, of life, and of goodness. It was anti-gospel and heretical. He says that kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. He says this, a little yeast. This is where we have to be clear as Christians. A little bad teaching ruins the whole batch of dough. This is why we can't be a church that discourages people's questions. Because if we are teaching and preaching truth, truth can stand the weight of doubt. People should ask questions of the preacher. They should ask questions of how the Bible is taught. And they should be able to discern, hey, this stuff is life-giving. Paul's coming along and he's saying, guys, who cut in on you? And to some of us today who are struggling with our faith, I wonder if maybe the Holy Spirit would say the same thing. Who cut in on you? Have you lost hope and faith in God, not because of God, but because of something else that was never godly to begin with? And I want to walk through for a moment, a guy named John Mark Como, who was referenced in our pre-service meeting when we were praying by Ash, actually walks through these frameworks of why some people deconstruct their faith. And I think this will be helpful. Because sometimes we think people walk away from Christianity because they just want to start sinning and, and not lead a Christian life. And that's almost too simplistic and offensive to people who have serious questions and doubts. So, so there are ex internal factors which cause people to question their faith, and there are external factors which cause people to question their faith. Let's go first to the internal factors that John Mark Comer, the first thing he would suggest that causes people to deconstruct their faith is what we call broken trust. Broken trust in what? Usually broken trust in the church. That people begin to deconstruct faith in, in Christ because the church hurt them, failed them, 
or even like in the Galatian church, taught them something that was not true. And, and I want to suggest, a guy named John Tyson offers this, that, that there are some of us here today, I want to acknowledge, that have been hurt by the church. And I want to just really validate that that is a horrible thing. But I also want to suggest that you may not have been hurt by the church, the capital C universal church. What you were hurt by is a group of people in a certain place at a congregation at a certain time who were broken in their following of Christ, who were disobedient in how they carried out their faith. And too many people walk away from God, not because of God, but because of people who claim to follow him. And that's really hard. I've had to apologize to people as a pastor of new life that I've hurt, that new life has hurt. So let me just flag this with you. If you want to be a part of a church that never hurts, friends, you're going to be looking for a long time because this is a place filled with broken people following a perfect savior. But I also want to suggest this, that if, if you have experienced pain with the church, sometimes we, we, we say this thing of like, I, I still want to follow Jesus and love Jesus, but I'm just done with his church. And I don't think we have that option. We might need some space for a time to heal. But Jesus doesn't have the luxury of walking away from his bride. And the bride has been failing Christ for 2,000 years. And he still shows up. If you're following Christ, you'll eventually be called back into a faithful, loving community of people who are stumbling their way home. Maybe the church has hurt you, and, and I would say that that's not God's intention. And on behalf of this church, if it's us, we are so sorry. But that some people have been hurt, and maybe the first thing they need to hear is not justification. They just need, hey, that should never have happened. And we are so sorry for that. Some people walk away and they deconstruct their faith because of cheap grace and, and lack of discipleship. That people are like, I just want us to preach a message of grace where everyone gets forgiven and that no sin is too great for, for the love and the forgiveness of God, which is true. That's awesome. But the other thing that often comes into confrontation is that Jesus doesn't just go, hey, I offer you grace once and then you're forgiven forever. He goes, I offer you grace once, you're forgiven forever. But the other thing, I want to change and shift and mold you and start to pull the sin out of your life that you may become holy and, and, and that the blameless life I've won for you would be matched by your actions. And when we don't talk about this and young people start to come up and their sin becomes confronted with faithful discipleship, someone coming along saying, hey, that's not what God wants for you. I'm sick of this legalism in the church. It's actually a problem, not of the church being legalistic, but usually of grace being too cheap and discipleship being too weak. That friends, what God offers us isn't just forgiveness. It's a new way to life and life in its full. When we don't preach and talk about that, then people get confused when we question the decisions they make. The next thing, and I want to touch on this briefly, is ascendant secular ideologies. Now, you might be like, wow, they're three words that I did not want to hear. In Kulagata this morning, it's 8.40, Michael, please don't use such big words. What is ascendant secular ideologies? It's this understanding that we are surrounded by a world like never before where people are being indoctrinated with worldviews that are not Christian and are not godly. I just want to be clear about this. And they are becoming unspoken about in the church. We don't talk about things about how the Bible offers a different way to life, a different thought on racism, that racism is wrong, it's ungodly, it's demonic, it should not be seen in the church. And so when we don't speak out about these things, people run to critical race theory because it is talking about it. 
or we don't talk about, hey, women should not be oppressed, they should not be abused, they should have equal opportunity. When the church does not fight for that stuff, then people run to feminism. Why? Because it's talking about the things that matter. And it's not because the Bible doesn't speak into these, but the secular world cries out for justice so often because the church hasn't spoken about it enough. And so sometimes these ascendant secular ideologies aren't just about justice, sometimes they're about identity. That when we don't talk about people's identity in Christ, then people start to question their identity. They think identity is something we make up rather than something that is given to us. And we form it in and of ourselves, regardless of what anyone thinks. And so we see people start to leave the church and deconstruct their faith because we don't have conversations that matter. These are the internal factors. The external factors look a little like this. First one is digital input and low scripture. That actually young adults today in a year will watch 3,000 hours of entertainment and if they're, if they're a Christian, only 250 of those hours will have Christian content in it, which means that their minds are being subjected to 750 hours a year of media that has nothing to do about God. And, and, and they have a low scripture input. You know, part of the reason, friends, why, why we're reading through the Bible in a year is because we believe that too often people leave the reading of the Bible to an hour on a Sunday rather than soaking in it every single day because here's the problem when we deconstruct. So often what people do is they take culture and they allow culture to deconstruct Scripture in the church. Whereas what we should be doing is allowing Scripture to deconstruct culture in the church and assess it and hold it up. Because it's like, you know, just a side thought. Everyone sits under an authority from somewhere. No one deconstructs or questions or is formed autonomously. People are like, I make my own decisions. No, you don't. We're all formed by something and by someone. You were not the first person to think your thought or, or, or question that question. And so what Christians do is we've decided, this is a question sermon for another time, to sit under the authority of that which has lasted thousands of years rather than the cultural moment which has lasted a decade. Some people, there is a genuine lack of the fear of God. When I mean fear, I don't mean that God will punish us, but I mean that he is holy, he is other, he is high and lifted up, he is mighty to save, he is transcendent and other. We have lost this. We've talked about buddy Jesus as God is his close and intimate person, which he is, and we've forgotten his holiness and his goodness. And so too, we have robbed ourselves of awe. And finally, and this is usually what John Mark Comer would said most people deconstruct, is they have a wounded heart. Suffering. A relationship breakdown. How God has not given me a partner yet, so therefore God must not be. We have a wounded heart. We're not willing to talk about the reality of pain. And so we must question, well, God mustn't exist because I don't like what I'm walking through. I don't like what was done to me. Friends, the reason why I say this is because when someone in your life comes to you and goes, I'm deconstructing right now, it's not just because they want to go have sex without having to worry about the church. It's usually because there are some significant complex things that have happened that they need someone to walk with them through and journey with them on. This is, this is the, the, the pain of deconstruction, but it's the reality because here's, here's what I believe. See, if we can understand these things, then we can actually offer a better way and a better hope and a better truth. But if we don't, what ends up happening to people as they continue to deconstruct their faith, as they go to small groups and no one answers questions... Their faith doesn't just deconstruct, it, it destructs. And they walk away together, all together. Because we weren't a safe environment for people to actually go, hey, can I push on Scripture? When someone knocks on our door late at night, we don't step into a wild conversation about being born again and salvation and truth. We're like, this is too hard for us. I believe that Jesus wants to offer us a different way and a better way and a better truth. 
And I don't know if you're here today and you are walking through questions and concerns and doubts with the Christian faith, but I've come to tell you that I believe God can not only take your questions, God can only field your doubts, but He can stand with you as you journey through them. 20 years ago, no, I would have been 12, about 15 years ago, um, I, I found myself in a university classroom. And I'd grown up in the church, and I sat there as I was studying history, surrounded by his histori- historical students, and we were talking about an ancient faith called Zoroastrianism. And someone made a, a, a claim. They said, man, I can't believe anyone ever believed in Zoroastrianism. And I'm like, yeah, well, you know, maybe. And then someone else goes, yeah, it's as ludicrous as someone believing that the Bible's true. And I remember this young Christian sitting in this room going, what? What? And then everyone laughed and nodded. And I found myself in an environment in a room that for the first time in my life, I'd grown up Christian home, went to a Christian school, had a lot of Christian friends, said, what you believe is dumb. And everything around me started to deconstruct. But the thing that led me back to a faith or the thing that led me through that moment was the faithfulness of the community around me to not let go of me even when I wanted to let go of them. To actually understand that these questions I was walking through are not the first time someone's asked, can the Bible be trusted? Or why does God send people to hell? Or you know, why is sex where it is in the church? These are, we are not the first people to ask these questions. There are people who have done faithful and good work around this. And we see in Paul, he even suggests friends allow deconstruction to happen, but sit under the weight and authority of that which can be, stru- can be trusted. Because here's what happens. The the problem with deconstruction isn't that it exists, is that we don't faithfully move to the next part of of the process, which is reconstruction. Reconstruction is what I want to call the path to orthodoxy. Now, now when I I use the word orthodoxy, I definitely didn't make up the term, but some of you are like, oh, so we're going to become one of those churches with like robes and incense and like that kind of thing. Yes, we are. Come next week. It's going to be really interesting. No, orthodoxy literally just means this, right belief. That's it. It means right belief. And we've like tied it together with like boring faith. No, no. Orthodoxy just means right belief. And we are an orthodox Christian church. We want to pursue right belief, not comfortable belief. Because at the end of the day, when you test your faith, the beauty that it has, you can, you can reconstruct it with right belief. The, the idea of reconstructing our faith is that we can actually go, okay, what can be tested to be true? And I have found, friends, that Jesus Christ is who he says he is. He is the risen and resurrected king, but it hasn't come through blind belief, but through tested faith and explored questions. I found that the Bible can be tested. It can be trusted. And it is not only just a historical document, but the living word of God. And we begin to reconstruct a faith where we actually realize, hey, you know what? Maybe not everything the pastor says is always true. Amen? Who said amen? That was a test. No, I'm kidding. You should have heard of that. When I preached this message last week at Rabina, I said, amen. And literally everyone's like, amen. And I'm like, whoa, there is a problem. But it's true. We shouldn't just blindly accept things, but walk into them, join a small group, discuss things intimately and in depth together. Because the idea of what we're talking about between construction, deconstruction, and reconstruction is maturing our faith. Paul actually rebukes, well, it might not have been Paul, the writer of Hebrews rebukes people in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11 to 14. He says, in fact, by this time, many of you have ought to be teachers. 
You need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. What's he saying here? Too many of you have been Christians for too long without having built a faith that is stood on understood and revealed truths of God. He then goes on and he says this, anyone who lives on milk, so anyone who just has a surface level understanding of this stuff is still an infant and is not equated with the teaching of righteousness, but solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. And most commentators would suggest that what Paul's saying here, to distinguish good teaching from evil heretical teaching. Friends, it is not just the role of Scott Wrigley to tell you what the Bible says. It is the role of this community to sit under the weight of the words of Scripture together, to live it out faithfully, to call each other to account when we don't do that well. Why? Because the biggest thing that's confusing the next generation are Christians who take Christianity passively and have more of a cultural Christianity rather than a biblical discipleship. And I'll tell you right now, in a post-Christian era, cultural Christianity will not last. Because it's a faith that's been built on a society that gives it permission to exist. But we are now heading into a time and a season where I believe we're not heading into persecution, friends. Just disdain. Just people who don't think the Christian faith has anything to offer them. And our faith will not thrive if it does not rest in the foundation. I want to suggest one last thought today. That actually for, for us to construct a faith, for us to reconstruct a faith, there's one essential question we must answer. There's one essential thing that before we can talk about any other question we have, we must wrestle with well and truthfully and purely. And it happens in Matthew chapter 16. When Jesus turns to his disciples, who he knows he's about to send into suffering, send into persecution, he's going to send into a world that does not like the message they have. He prepares them by asking them a really simple question. And it's simply this. Who am I? He turns to Peter and to the disciples and he says, who am I? And what I've found when people question their faith is the one question they don't actually wrestle with is who is Jesus? Let me, let me explain why this is so important. Because if Jesus wasn't who he said he was, if Jesus wasn't the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Savior, the Messiah, then it doesn't matter about the Bible. It doesn't matter why God sends people to hell because it's not real. The, the sex questions, the identity questions, they all hinge on one central cornerstone. Who is Jesus Christ? I had a young female after I preached this at Rabina last week text me and she said, Mark, that's a really unfair question because it doesn't doesn't help me with any of my other doubts about all these questions I've already mentioned today. And, and, and I challenged her and I said, I'm not saying that answering who Jesus is takes away every question. It gives you the pathway to answer them well. Because if Jesus Christ is who He said He is, then we go, well, God is good. God is loving. God forgives. God's give grace to the humble. Then we go, okay, well, God, why, why on earth would you say what you say about sex? And, and this is why I encourage people to go, well, return here, that whatever God says about it must be good, must be just, must be loving, must be kind, must be the best thing for you because no one else in this world did what He did. No one else in this world laid down their lives so you might have life. But if you didn't do it, then you're free from every other question. Because Jesus made this bold claim. He said, I am the way. I am the truth. 
and I am the life. So all we have to do is pursue truth, and I believe at the end we will find Jesus. Or we can short-circuit the process altogether and ask the ultimate question, who is Jesus? Now, I want to ask you this to the Christians in the room today. Do you have a personal revelation of who Jesus is? Or just a cultural answer? Statistics have shown that if the next generation are going to remain in church, then they need to see the generations before them believe passionately in the beautiful person of Jesus because he is real to them, not just nice to them. Do you know him? Do you know him? So those parents in the room who are wondering, how do I help my children have a faith that lasts? Statistics show us that parents that have a personal revelation of Jesus and invite their children into that revelation, invite their children to a faith that lasts. Not why drugs are right or wrong, not why the Bible is true or not, but why Jesus is true, is good, and is who he said he was. Do you know who Jesus is? Do you know who Jesus is? We are invited, friends, as Christians, to not only construct a biblical worldview, but to assess it, deconstruct it, and then reconstruct it in line with Jesus and his kingdom. Because this matters. So who do you say that Jesus is? Would you stand with me? About... A little while ago now, around the same time I was at university, I realized that I, I knew about Jesus, but I didn't know Jesus. And I read a book named Reason for God by a guy named Timothy Keller, and he offers this prayer. He said, if you've answered every question, but you still find your heart has not connected with the Savior of the universe, then he then said, here's a simple prayer. Because you don't find the shepherd, the shepherd finds you. And he taught me a prayer that that changed my life. He said, just pray this, good shepherd, come find me. So I want to offer that today, not just to those of you who are new to faith or new to church, but to every one of you. When was the last time you had a revelation of Jesus Christ? What the world needs is not people who know how to do church or know how to look Christian, but who know Jesus. So would you pray with me? So gracious God, as we pray right now, Lord, I I ask that you would speak and you would move. Maybe you're here today and, and you have more questions than you do answers. I just want to say, I actually think sometimes questions lead us to deeper intimacy. Don't run with, don't run from them. But what you need is to know there is a faithful shepherd who walks through the valley of doubt with you. His name is Jesus. And that's you and you want to know who Jesus is. I just love, would you just open your hands in front of you right now? And maybe you're here today and and you're a Christian and you're like, man, I know how to do this. I know how to perform. I remember when I started praying this prayer, the heavens didn't part. I wasn't, I didn't fall over in, in wonder. But when I prayed, good shepherd, come find me, over the following years, I found in incremental moments, Jesus began revealing himself to me. And I've never looked back. I want to invite you to start the same journey today. If you're a Christian and you're like, I need a fresh revelation of Christ, would you open your hands in front of you right now? 
Lord God, I know we have a, a world around us that threatens to distract, discourage, and destroy our faith in you. But Jesus, you find your sheep, no matter how lost we may be, no matter how wayward our hearts. Father, we can be utterly lost and be at church every Sunday. So God, I pray right now, Holy Spirit, reveal to us who Jesus is, that we might know you as our close and present friend, our high and exalted King. 